On July 14th, the citizens of Paris, demanding enlightened governance, stormed the Bastille and brought King Louis XVI to his knees. The textbook Western Civilization, the continuing experiment, tells us that the king's symbolic gesture of wearing the colors of the revolutionaries signaled the legitimization of politics based on new principles. The book's authors continue, Encouraged by events in Paris, inhabitants of cities and towns around France staged similar uprisings. In many, the machinery of royal government completely broke down. City council officials and even parliamentarians were thrown out of office. Popular militias took control of the streets. There was a simultaneous wave of uprisings in rural areas. Most of them were the result of food shortages, but their timing added momentum to the more strictly political protests in urban areas. These events began in 1787. Within five years, Louis will have gone from king to prisoner, and then from prisoner to the headsman block. France was about to descend into a murderous frenzy that history has come to know as the Terror. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the third in a series of five episodes regarding the French Revolution. Episode 3, Down with the King. Le Grande Pour, or the Great Fear, surged across France, casting a pall across the entire country over a ten-day period, roughly a week after the fall of the Bastille. King Louis XVI likely believed that his concessions to the newly formed National Assembly were enough to subdue the revolutionary desires sweeping the country. After all, he had shown that he was far more willing to bend in comparison to his immediate predecessors. To some, the attack on the Bastille was mere spontaneous rage at the removal of the popular finance minister Nectar, a man who had now been restored to power. Thus, it was a surprise to all when the great fear seemed to emerge from out of nowhere. In fact, historians aren't even sure about its causes, only that what emerged was a deadly period of widespread panic and unrest that swept across rural France during the summer of 1789. Proving that Yoda was more or less right when he claimed that fear is the path to the dark side. Peasant uprisings, riots, and attacks on aristocratic property sprang up across the country. Rumors and fears of brigands and foreign invaders followed closely in the wake. The members of the Third Estate lived beneath the rule of the nobles that made up the Second Estate due to the awarding of seignorial jurisdictions. In this system, empowered nobles had been granted the exclusive power to collect taxes administer local justice, and regulate various aspects of daily life within their territorial districts. This included the power to control who could hunt in the area, how land was used, and who could marry or trade with whom. 
As one would expect, many seniors abuse their power, using it to extract wealth and labor, and then utilizing their gains in order to entrench their own privileged status. This new wave of attacks on the aristocracy was another direct challenge to the traditional social order, and signaled for the first time that the rural population was no longer willing to tolerate the abuse of the nobles. The xenophobic fear of outsiders further buoyed the growing underbelly of nationalism that was essential to the revolutionary movement as the French citizens rallied around the idea of a united and sovereign nation. Still, there is a good chance that the Great Fear was merely a response to the economic and social stresses that were plaguing France at the time. After all, the country was suffering from a severe economic downturn, and many peasants were struggling to feed themselves and their families. In that context, lashing out at the aristocracy is easy to understand, as the social order was deeply unequal with the second estate enjoying privileges and wealth at the direct expense of the common people. Changes in the planet's climate only exacerbated these challenges, as it took some time to recognize that the seasonal changes they were witnessing were closer to a new normal, rather than just an unlucky one-off event. Another school of thought believes that the Great Fear was a part of a giant four-dimensional chess game played by the National Assembly in its unceasing war against the Crown. These individuals suspect that the event was artificially fueled by rumors and propaganda. Some historians argue that these falsehoods were deliberately spread by revolutionaries who believed that they could advance the cause by stoking fear and anger amongst the common citizens. But fear alone cannot rule men's hearts. The National Assembly followed through with its promise to form a citizen's militia, which became known as the National Guard. Such a creation should have reassured the rural populace that they were safe from brigands and foreign invaders. Politically, the parliament used the fear gripping the nation to vote on legislation, which ended the last vestiges of feudal privilege, opening the door to those who believed that the chasm between the third and second estate could soon be bridged. Within a week's worth of work during the period of the Great Fear, they had worked to abolish serfdom, all hunting monopolies, and all seigneurial jurisdictions. Even more shockingly, the Assembly voted to eliminate all tax privileges and exemptions from here on out. That last part is pretty important, because the people of France heard only the beginning of the prior sentence. One must imagine that they were too busy celebrating to grasp the subtext of the legislation, namely that they were only abolishing future taxes. All current and formerly held dues were intended to be paid off, but the French people assumed otherwise, and thus grew increasingly hostile to tax collectors. Historian Ian Davidson tells us that the inevitable consequence was that the fiscal crisis of the French state, which was already close to insolvency, grew almost insoluble.
Having dismantled the feudal state, the assembly next turned its revolutionary gaze upon the church in its decision to eliminate mandatory tithing as an undue burden on the French people. To soften the blow, however, the assembly agreed that the state would pay for the church's costs. This was a win-win for the French people, who were ardent believers in the Catholic faith, but hated the required tithing that came with their belief. A week later, the assembly published its long-awaited preamble to the Constitution, the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Davidson refers to the document as the most enduring legacy of the French Revolution, one which symbolizes the moment when the revolutionaries were at their best and trying their hardest to make a better world via a better form of government. The document was largely based on the American Declaration of Independence, but a number of things went wrong from the get-go. First, the document was intended to be amendable, but after the Constitution was finally created two years later, it became impossible to alter such rights. Secondly, the Declaration of Independence claimed what they believed to be the rights of Englishmen, which were subsequently being denied to them. The French version was the opposite, as it merely denied the rights of a monarch, in this case Louis XVI. Thus, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man can be seen as a declaration of war against the ancient regime. Of noted absence within the document is the mention of any rights for women. This obvious oversight aside, the Declaration represents a statement of fundamental human rights that were deemed universal. It consists of a preamble and 17 articles which assert, among other things, that all men are born free and equal in rights, and that these rights are natural, inalienable, and sacred. Among those expressed are the freedom of speech, religion, and the press, as well as the right to property and a fair trial. Uniquely, the document clearly places the nation above the king or any other governing body. The Declaration of the Rights of Man came out before the Constitution because it was intended to serve as a blueprint that would be used to lay a solid foundation for the origins of the new French state. Yet two other later declarations of the rights of men would be drafted over the course of the Revolution, showing that their sacred principles could and would be altered depending upon who was holding the pen and what the nation's circumstances were at that precise moment. Rather than hammering out a perfect document, the assembly felt compelled to deal with their most pressing issue, what to do with the former head of the state. There were those within the assembly that had already come to the conclusion that the revolution was going too far and too fast. These pro-monarch factions sought to retain a strong king who would maintain an absolute veto, but still work within a two-chamber form of parliament modeled along the lines of the British House of Commons and Lords. They were countered by a number of delegates from Brittany, who formed the Club Breton, a faction that sought to dissolve the monarchy immediately. 
Compromise appeared to be the order of the day as the delegates reached consensus by rejecting a bicameral legislature, which likely would have served to restore the power of the aristocracy through a French-styled House of Lords. They did this in favor of just the National Assembly. They granted the king a suspensive veto that would delay the legislature's will for a mere four years. After such a time, however, the king would be powerless to stop the will of the legislature. Why was compromise possible at this stage of the revolution? At this point, they still believed that they needed the king's approval in order to ratify the declaration, as well as their teardown of feudalism. They were still working within the framework of the ancient regime. When handed the documents that threatened to overthrow his birthright, Louis refused to sign them, instead summoning multiple regiments of loyal soldiers to arrive in Versailles on September 23rd. It appeared as though he was repeating his mistakes during the build-up to the Bastille. Relegated to the background, people were finding their voices for the first time. Local reform gave the people of Paris democratic institutions through which to raise their previously silent voices. Unfortunately, first-time elections during a time of serious unrest is never a good combination. Food shortages were becoming a regular occurrence. Although the harvest was good, the food that had left the fields hadn't reached the shops in the cities. Davidson tells us that supplies were proving difficult to find, there were long queues at the doors of bakeries, and the price of a four-pound loaf of bread had risen from the normal 12.5 to 13.5 sous. New voices emerged at this moment. Jean-Paul Marat, a failed Swiss doctor, began his scandalous tabloid L'Ami du Pouhois, as well as Maximilien Robespierre, a young lawyer who pushed for passage of the Constitution without the king's approval. Robespierre stated that the king's reply is destructive, not only of any constitution, but even of any national right to have a constitution. Anyone who can impose a condition on the constitution has the right to prevent that constitution. He places his will above the rights of the nation. As these talks were happening, the king's decision to bring in outside forces, rather than engaging the mayor of Paris's new citizen militia, sent signs that Louis was either preparing to fight or flee. The arrival of the troops lit the spark of the next phase of the revolution. But the king's actions weren't widely known until the free press discovered and reported it on October of 1793. Reports flooded out of Paris's independent print shops regarding the king's regiment's feast held within the borders of the starving city of Paris. At the feast, toasts were overflowing for the royal family, but no soldier shouted out a blessing for the nation. Worst of all, the National Cockade, a circular version of the tricolor French flag, had reportedly been trampled underfoot during the celebrations. Whether such an action happened or not is irrelevant. 
as author Mark Twain taught us that a lie will fly around the whole world while the truth is getting its boots on. Indeed, within one day of the reporting, rumors began to fly around that there was a government plot emerging directly from the crown to punish the city of Paris via starvation. Within two days, it had emerged that Queen Marie Antoinette had stated her infamously untrue line of, let them eat cake. On the third day, the peasantry were angrily marching on the king's palace of Versailles, demanding, among other things, bread. They were led by Stanislas Marie Malliard, a bailiff clerk and veteran of the storming of the Bastille. They gained followers as they went, men and women who were so determined that they dragged along a few cannons to go with whatever weapons they had available on hand. By the evening, they were 7,000 strong amassed at the palace gates. Hours behind, but racing to catch up to them, were 20,000 men of the Paris citizen militia, the National Guard. Faced with a very real threat at his doorstep, the king notified the National Assembly at 8 p.m. that he would accept the Declaration of the Rights of Man, as well as the terms offered regarding the king's suspensive veto. He went even further, however, again showing that he was interested in actually improving the quality of life within his country by promising to make available all the bread that could be found in Versailles for the protesters. But still, this wasn't enough for the crowd assembled, and the king, seeking to put to bed the supposed government conspiracy against his people, agreed to return to Paris with Lafayette and the National Guard after appearing on his balcony, loudly proclaiming, My friends, I shall go to Paris with my wife and children. It is to the love of my good and faithful subjects that I entrust all that is most precious to me. What happened next was a pivotal moment in the early stages of this long revolution. Around 6 a.m., drunken protesters, who had now become welcomed guests of the king, tussled with his majesty's bodyguards, and soon shots rang out. Two of the king's personal bodyguards were killed before the protesters forcibly removed their heads from their bodies in order to stick them on pikes for the march home. Thus, at 1 p.m., the sovereign king of France, whom three years earlier everyone had been convinced that he had been personally chosen by God, rode out of Versailles at the head of 60,000 supplicants. But rather than serving at the head of a victory procession, this king rode out surrounded by troops loyal to a revolution that remained uncertain about what to do with the king, whose bodyguards adorned the pikes of his captors. Showing how far Louis had fallen were the carts of wheat and flour that traveled alongside the soldiers, surrounded by women and market porters who chanted, We are bringing back the baker, the baker's wife, and the little baker's boy. Seven hours later, the king and his family were settled in at the Tuileries Palace.
Louis was obliged to live within the limits of a civil list that had been provided for them. But neither you nor I would find it very restrictive, as the king's household was still allowed to spend up to 25 million per year. Tuileries wasn't the worst place to serve out an unofficial home arrest. It had been built in the 16th century and included a sprawling complex of buildings and gardens with more than 2,000 rooms. The opulent gilded ceilings carefully manicured hedges and museum-worthy displays of fine art were suited for a king. But this level of decadence did little to calm the revolutionary fervor that had swept through Paris. Davidson believes that Louis's return to the capital gradually weaned power away from the National Assembly because now that the king was a prisoner of Paris, he and the government were subject to the pressures of the mob. He writes that the fact that there was now a second center of power which could mobilize violent muscle in the streets first against the king and then against the National Assembly exacerbated the deep splits between the different factions within the assembly. As a result, the revolution turned progressively into a life-and-death struggle among these different factions and between them and the crowd power of the common people of Paris. In October of 1789, the National Assembly joined the king at Tuileries but continued to behave as though they were the only branch of government in existence. They continued their work in dismantling the ancient regime by redividing France into 83 new apartments devoid of gerrymandering. Each district was roughly equal in size, regular in shape, and designed so that all citizens could reach the departmental capital within one day. The redesign, however, required a massive shifting of political offices, one that resulted in a substantial increase in the number of elected officials needed to serve within the new roles. Finding qualified candidates in the new districts was nearly impossible, as the rural poor had been locked out of the benefits of access to education for generations. The radical reshaping of France continued in November, with the state turning to the Catholic Church's $47 million in surplus savings to cover the expected $31 million shortage of state revenue. The newly appointed bishop, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, an early supporter of the revolution, proposed fully nationalizing the French church in order to sell off large portions of their property. He expected this would more than cover the budget deficit, permit the abolition of the dreaded salt tax, and progressively pay off the national debt. As one might expect, the church's rank and file hated the idea of becoming government employees. The clergy warned the wider populace that although it was their turn in the barrel, they wouldn't be the last to be taken for a ride, warning that property is sacred for us as for you. We are being attacked today, but do not deceive yourselves. If we are despoiled today, your turn will come. The warning fell on deaf ears, as the motion easily passed by a nearly two-to-one margin. 
The French budget deficit was solved in the short term, but now the nation had to pay the salaries of priests, which in turn resulted in a mass layoff of monks and nuns whom the state referred to as idlers and do-nothings. Each new department received a bishop elected by their district's local parishioners. State control was stifling for the church, which was regularly forced to read out government announcements from their lecterns each Sunday. The church grinned and grudgingly abided by the new policies, until they were forced to swear an oath to the state, an oath that would supersede their oaths to God and the Pope. Of the first 250 chosen to swear, only 99 consented. The bishops followed suit, with only seven of the 83 agreeing to join the revolution. Interestingly, the numbers differed dramatically depending upon how close you were to Paris, the epicenter of the revolt. Within the city, 80% of the Paris priests took the oath of loyalty to the state, while 80% of those outside the city steadfastly refused. A stern condemnation of the policy came down from the Vatican, which flipped a number of those priests who had been willing to sign on to the new oathing requirements. Those that refused to swear the oaths were replaced by popular election, which included among them numerous revolutionary atheists. This massive exodus in the church created a new social class, deemed refractory priests, as the priests who refused to swear the oath to the state became known as. Thus, the known precinct priests from their childhood were replaced with incompetent and often corrupt bureaucrats who may or may not have believed in the existence of the God that they were elected to serve. Although $2 billion had been estimated, somewhere around $500 million were raised from the sale of church property over a 10-year period. The lands were auctioned and thus couldn't all be put up for sale at the same time. The fact that everyone knew that the state was desperate for money meant that buyers held out hoping that the price would lower with time. A better way to fix the nation's money troubles would have been to replace the dismantled tax code with something new. But the revolutionary government, particularly at the department level, knew little of economics. They also were prone to corruption, which flourished during the chaotic times. Malfeasance was easy to hide as the Declaration of the Rights of Man declared that taxation could only happen with the consent of the governed which enabled each individual Frenchman to believe that they could determine whether or not they wanted to pay their required taxes. The assembly dealt with the continuous shortfalls by turning to the printing press, which began to push out France's first paper currency. As one might expect, the policy didn't turn the economy around. People didn't trust the paper, as it wasn't backed by a recognized central bank. Thus, they hoarded old coinage, which constricted the economy further. Davidson reveals that in 1791, the paper currency was down in value by 18%. In 1792, it fell further to 28% under expectations, 
and in 1793 tumbled further down by 48%. The bottom finally fell out in 1795 when a bill supposedly worth 1000 could buy only 80 livres in metal currency. Hoarding money is one thing, hoarding food is quite another. As the peasants became reluctant to take the state's paper money, they cut back on the sales of cereals, which led to shortages in food supplies, and thus to hunger and even near famine. Davidson claims that the decision was in effect to establish a virtual state of war between the peasantry and the town folk. Living within this perpetual war zone eventually grew too wearisome for the prisoner king. As early as 1790, individuals were being hung in conjunction with plots designed to break Louis free from his captors. Seeing no end in sight for his predicament, the king began to go along with the plans. The breaking point occurred after he was denied permission to take his family out to a chateau in St. Cloud. Finally, on the night of June 20th, 1791, the French king, Louis XVI, attempted a daring escape from his palace in Paris. The king, alongside his wife, Marie Antoinette, and their children, were accompanied by a small group of loyal supporters, including members of his household staff. The plan was to slip out of the palace in disguise, join up with a group of loyal troops that were waiting outside the city, and then make their way to the safety of the eastern border of France. From there, they planned to cross into Germany and seek asylum with the king's cousin, the Holy Roman Emperor. However, the plan quickly began to unravel. The king and his family struggled to put on their disguises, which included large wigs and fake beards. The queen was aghast when she laid eyes on the coach that was intended to lead her to her salvation, She delayed the departure by demanding to ride in a top-of-the-line coach that was inlaid at the minimum with ivory and rosewood. Additionally, it would need to be large enough for her two chambermaids, whom she positively couldn't travel without. Unfortunately, the coach that met her regal standards could only travel seven miles per hour, ensuring that they were still too close to their captors by the time their disappearance had been noted. Worse, their travels were far too easy to track, as numerous individuals grew suspicious upon seeing such a finely detailed coach on the road. Despite their disguises, they were eventually recognized by a local postmaster, who had previously seen the king's image on the old coinage. The guardsmen challenged the king. A scuffle broke out, and the king's supporters were forced to use the extra furniture that the queen had brought with her to barricade themselves inside of their rooms. A judge was subsequently brought forth from Versailles to settle the issue, and upon recognition, the soldiers seized the initiative and dragged the royal family back to Paris. Historian Mark Steele describes the aftermath for us, writing that when the king and his family were returned to Paris, posters informed the enormous crowd that came to witness his return. Whoever applauds the king will be flogged. 
Whoever insults him will be hanged, they read. The result was the greatest insult, a silent crowd, and as a deliberate mark of contempt, they all wore hats. This was the beginning of a new phase of the revolution. The king had been caught red-handed in opposition to the Constitution, and large numbers of people became capable of imagining a country not just without Louis, but without a king at all. The failed escape attempt only served to further inflame tensions between the king and the revolutionary government, solidifying the king's reputation as an enemy of the revolution. While the escape attempt ultimately failed, it demonstrated the king's willingness to take risks in order to protect his own interests. It also showed that he was acutely aware that things were more likely to get worse before they got better. Despite the king clearly wanting out, the assembly remained baffled at what to do with him. Thus, in an effort to lower the temperature, they began circulating a false rumor that the king's disappearance had been an attempted kidnapping and not an escape. Seeking to absolve the king and protect him from further assaults, the assembly passed legislation which made it illegal to call for a trial of the king. It was a necessary action after a new anti-monarch political party called the Club des Corlears publicly called for the execution of the king and the immediate creation of a republic. Mass protests arose. Unable to stomach further humiliation to the man whom they had sworn to protect, about 6,000 army officers that remained loyal to the king fled the country that he supposedly remained the head of. This mass emigration and increasingly valid concerns about the potential spread of the revolution's anti-monarch philosophies led to the Austrian and Prussian emperors expressing their concern with the way the French were spitting in the face of their historical traditions. The statement was taken as a threat of war, despite the fact that the two empires had no real intentions of intervening in the state's affairs. One man who did intend to effect radical change was Englishman Thomas Paine. His pamphlet, Common Sense, had championed the cause of American independence. Now operating in part as a friend of Voltaire, he published another incendiary product titled The Rights of Man, a full condemnation of the British monarchy. The uproar that followed forced Paine to flee England in favor of France, where he published the second part of the work, which outlined a spectacular program of economic and social reform which would establish France as a welfare state. His obsession with eradicating inequality is what had originally forced him out of America's good graces. His thoughts were truly radical on the issue. For instance, he wrote that for rich and poor to live in the same society is like dead and living bodies being chained together. 
It was voices like Paine's that would set this next phase of the revolution alight. The political parties, or clubs as they styled themselves, began to force the issue. The Cordeliers argued for a public referendum regarding the king's fate. Although it was a call for the people to decide between two choices, public opinion was known to be steadfastly unfavorable towards Louis, who was about as popular as the French delicacies of escargot, frog legs, and beef tartare are outside of their own borders. The Jacobins, a faction that we will go in depth on during our last episode of this series, called for the king's abdication and replacement by constitutional means. The Circle Social made the argument that the king's flight meant that he had already abdicated his throne. The mob became so unruly regarding the issue that Lafayette was forced to utilize his National Guard militia to open fire upon demonstrators killing 50 French revolutionaries. Circle Social was subsequently shut down, forcing Marat and other influential anti-monarchists to temporarily go into hiding. To settle the issue, the assembly finally produced a finished constitution. But the final draft left the monarchy intact, and in some small instances actually strengthened it. Ten days after passage, the king publicly agreed to the constitutional limits on his authority, but never actually intended to be held to it. With a new constitution in hand, election season began anew, this time with strict limitations on the right to vote. It turns out that the democratic constitution wasn't very democratic. Women were fully excluded and men were allowed to vote only if they fell into a high enough tax bracket. You had to be age 25, not a domestic servant, nor a former criminal. Davidson reveals that while the majority of men in the countryside could qualify, only one-third of the men in towns were able to meet the benchmarks. Based upon the restrictions, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the French Revolution's leading philosophers, was unable to exercise his right to vote. Turnout in the election was abysmal, with only 10% of Paris exercising their right to vote. Those numbers are even more dreadful than the 2004 American Vote or Die campaign that was spearheaded by celebrity Paris Hilton, a celebrity who forgot to vote. By the end of 1791, the people of Paris had lost almost all of their enthusiasm for the revolution. The newly elected assembly represented all of the worst traits that parliamentary democracy had to offer. Like the British model, it was unruly, as speakers were regularly drowned out by insults and catcalls. Like the American Congress, partisanship was firmly entrenched, with the Jacobins sitting together on the left, while pro-monarch groups sat on the right. Interestingly, this is where the political spectrum terms left and right originate from, with the progressive left sitting together on one side, opposed to the more conservative right. The legislatures were also quite young and inexperienced 
as Maximilian Robespierre had convinced others to pass a decree that no member of the prior Congress could serve in the next. This strict, unfazed term limit meant that the leading members of the revolution were all benched before the game had hit halftime. Before the new government could get their feet settled by starting to knock out a few small issues, the nation was hit hard by a familiar foe, food shortages. But this time it came with a new twist, as slaves throughout their colonies, particularly Haiti, had revolted, disrupting trade in commodities such as sugar that they had grown quite addicted to. Soon the shortages turned violent throughout the countryside. Rather than fix the problem, the assembly decided to foolishly wag the dog. The term refers to a political strategy in which a government creates a diversion or crisis in order to distract from other issues or problems they may be facing. The phrase is often used to describe situations in which a government or leader seeks to generate a sense of urgency or crisis in order to distract from other issues or to create a sense of national unity. It comes from the proverbial phrase, the tail wagging the dog, which implies a situation where a smaller or less significant part of something is controlling the larger or more important part. While it is true that the king desperately wanted to leave the country, and that his brothers, who had already escaped, were attempting to dredge up support for a rescue effort led by Europe's other monarchs, the war that ensued was not just the king's fault. Davidson tells us that almost everyone in France seemed set on war for opposing reasons. The king wanted war because he hoped that the Austrians, whose government was run by his in-laws, would come to his rescue. Lafayette and his National Guard supporters wanted war because many of them were military men and thought that they would do well out of it, or at least well enough to be able to bring the revolution under their control and many of the political factions wanted war at least partly for idealistic reasons, in the belief that victory would enable them to extend the benefits of the revolution to other countries. Robespierre seemed to stand alone in opposition to the war. The future leader of France warned that the nation was not yet ready for an international conflict and would not be ready without first undergoing a massive rearmament effort. Furthermore, he feared that a victorious war might bring to power a popular general, who would then be in position to usurp the crown. Such a figure would likely be far less malleable than Louis. In other words, he believed that a king in hand is worth two in the bush. Thus, on April 20th, the National Assembly preemptively declared war on Austria. Only seven withheld their votes from the war proclamation. France's politicians were all in as a method of achieving unity and simultaneously distracting their people's increasingly empty stomachs. However, the plan backfired spectacularly, only serving to exacerbate the problems facing the nation. From the onset of the war, it became clear that Robespierre's concerns had been legitimate. 
The French soldiers were a mix of inexperienced volunteers and poorly trained conscripts. Remember that after the king's attempt at a very slow but still daring escape, half of the officer corps fled outside of France's borders. At times, the French army's failures were comical, with one group of soldiers which had been inspired by Enlightenment ideals of equality and democracy decided to elect their own officers instead of following the chain of command. While this may have seemed like a thoughtful progressive move, it led to mass confusion and disarray on the battlefield. Even in democratic countries such as America, the military is consistently run in accordance with strict authoritarian principles. After all, the popular decision typically isn't to command your men to charge towards the enemy firing line. The generals didn't work hand-in-hand with the National Assembly, whom they correctly believed were far too inexperienced to direct a war effort. At one point, Lafayette and two other leading generals decided to unilaterally contact the Austrians in order to suspend hostilities. The ceasefire subsequently backfired on the French as it gave the enemy time to regroup and put together a plan for a war that they had never intended to fight. Disorganization wasn't the only problem as company morale was abysmal. New revolutionary soldiers dressed in blue and received significantly better wages than the military holdovers who wore white uniforms. Thus, the divisions were on display for all to see. As the war dragged on, the French army suffered a series of defeats, and by the end of 1792, the Austrians had captured several important fortresses on the French side of the border. The failures of the war effort only served to fuel the discontent of the French people. The soldiers who had returned from the front lines were often bitter and disillusioned, having seen firsthand the failures of the revolution. Additionally, the war had further drained the country's resources and made the nation's everyday economic problems even worse. Soldiers called into duty often were forced to do so with a pike, as the nation had run out of rifles. With this anger as the backdrop, the final fall of the king began with events that one might choose to describe as silly and juvenile. But that should come as no surprise, as we have seen throughout this series, the French were definitely willing to sink to those standards. It was June 20th, 1792, and tensions, as they had for years now, were running high in Paris. The French Revolution was in full swing, and the people were growing increasingly restless regarding the promises that they had been sold. A large group of protesters approached the assembly and demanded the right to hold a parade within the confines of the National Assembly, which was currently conducting their meetings within the indoor riding stadium attached to the king's prisoner home of Tuileries. Among the ragtag crew demanding the right to assemble were members of the Sans-Culottes, working-class individuals who separated themselves from the aristocracy through their revolutionary dress. The term itself means without knee breaches, 
they typically fell into the radical Jacobin faction. These groups were among the most vocal and militant in their opposition to the king and were known for their willingness to result to violence and intimidation to achieve their goals. Knowing of their reputation, the assembly only led in a small delegation of the protesters which had rudely shown up on their doorstep. In a moment of terror, the assembly approved of the so-called parade, which lasted for a very drunken three hours. During the display, some of the inebriated protesters found their way into the adjoining palace via an unlocked and unguarded door. Soon, they emerged upon the bedchambers of the captive royal family. Davidson describes a remarkably calm Louis XVI placing a red bonnet upon his head as a symbol of liberty. He even relented to drinking a glass of red wine with them as though he was in the midst of a new planning committee. But the situation was anything but calm. The crowd jostled him, insulted him, and shouted angry phrases such as down with the veto at him. The worst of it was reserved for Queen Marie Antoinette, whom they called a whore, threw mud at, and a few daring protesters even spat in her face. Eventually, the king and his family were able to escape the situation and seek refuge in one of the other 2,000 rooms within the spatial palace. But things continued to dangerously escalate within the confines of their new home. Lafayette, the head of the National Guard, a veteran of the American Revolution, and a supporter of the monarchy, rushed to the Crown's aid unilaterally abandoning the military front against the Austrians. Eight days after the manhandling of the king, he stood before the National Assembly and demanded that the Jacobin Club be dissolved for the role that they played in the humiliation. Failing to secure the votes, Lafayette privately announced his intentions to take control of the local National Guard. He intended to utilize them to march against the Jacobins himself. But the Queen leaked the proposal, announcing that, I see well that Monsieur de Lafayette wants to save us. But who will save us from him? The popular general stunt backfired. His dramatic unilateral suspension of hostilities had again given the Austrians and the Prussians time to regroup and their subsequent advancement advanced the justification needed for the assembly to proclaim a national emergency, which in turn gave them the legal right to override the king's vetoes, negating his lone remaining power. They also determined that all government meetings must be held in public. Davidson tells us that this ensured that their discussions were immediately invaded by political agitators and had the automatic effect of driving away moderate citizens who were intimidated by the agitators' threats and insults. Under this pressure, political ferment at these meetings became more and more intense. The advancing enemy forces seemed to focus the French's fear. With the fate of Louis foremost on their mind, Adding fuel to the fire, the commander of the Austrian forces issued an ultimatum that read in part, The French 
and especially the people of Paris, were called on to submit to the king without delay. And if the least violent were to be shown towards their majesties, the king and the queen, and to the royal family, the kings of Prussia and Austria will inflict on them an exemplary punishment and subject the city of Paris to a military execution and an overthrow, and the guilty rebels to the tortures which they will have deserved. The ultimatum was interpreted by those Frenchmen in rebellion as confirmation that the war, which I remind you was started by the French, was designed not to fight the king, but to restore him. It is at inflection points like this that those in power need to step up and do the right thing. Confucius, the great Chinese philosopher, tells us that knowing what is the right thing but failing to do it is the greatest cowardice that one can exhibit. But at this point in time, the National Assembly was broken. Davidson tells us that its inexperienced politicians were completely overtaken by events. At this crucial moment, it was broken seemingly beyond repair. Modern-day philosopher Anne Rand tells us that the spread of evil is the symptom of a vacuum. Whenever evil wins, it is only by default, by the moral failures of those who evade the fact that there can be no compromise on basic principles. As the assembly stumbled, another group emerged to pick up the baton. They referred to themselves as the Commune Insurrectionale. Robespierre seemed to be behind this newest incursion, but refused to step forward as its head until it had firmly established itself. This new insurrection happened on August 10th, with the sans culottes overthrowing the Paris Commune in order to establish their own government by taking over a large hall. This was eerily reminiscent of the Third Estate taking over an indoor tennis court to right what they had seen as an injustice. To ensure that they were afforded the time to establish themselves, they seized and placed the mayor of Paris under house arrest. Again, an eerie repeat of what the National Assembly had done to their executive, the king. The insurrection of August 10, 1792 was marked by intense fighting in the streets of Paris. As the day wore on, the tension in the city grew, and a group of armed insurgents began to make their way towards the palatial home of King Louis XVI. The revolutionaries, who were armed with muskets and pikes, faced off against the Swiss guards who were defending the palace. The fighting began early in the morning, with the insurrectionists attacking the palace from all sides. The Swiss guards, who were heavily outnumbered, put up a fierce resistance, firing their muskets and even going so far as to charge the mob with their bayonets fixed. The streets of Paris were soon filled with the smell of smoke and the sounds of battle as the revolution once again turned violent. Despite their valiant efforts, the Swiss guards were eventually overwhelmed, with most being brutally murdered. The palace was then ransacked by the revolutionaries, who looted it for valuable items while destroying anything that they considered to be a symbol of the monarchy. 
Showing once more that Louis did not desire the events that were unfolding, he sent desperate messages that fell upon deaf ears for the Swiss guards to stop their resistance and instead let the protesters through. With 800 men lying dead, the king and the National Assembly finally relented to the mob and agreed that the monarchy of France would be suspended, at least until a national convention had spoken. But that still didn't actually settle what to do with the actual human being who currently wore the crown upon his head. The insurrectionary commune detailed their plans on August 12th, by informing the National Assembly that he was to be held within the prison cells of the old Paris Monastery of the Templars. Again, the Assembly had the opportunity to push back against this new rival usurping its power, but rather than show the revolutionary backbone that had created it in the first place, the Assembly remained silent. And as Leonardo da Vinci pointed out, Nothing strengthens authority so much as silence. As the day drew to a close, the monarchy that had effectively been overthrown and the commune insurrectionale headed by radical Jacobin Maximilian Robespierre had established itself as the de facto government of Paris. Robespierre and his fellow revolutionaries were hailed as heroes by the people, and the seeds of the most radical phase of the revolution had been sown. Davidson tells us that the French revolutionaries had finally crossed the fatal frontier into illegality. For more than three years, the revolution had been managed peacefully, and above all legally by the bourgeoisie revolutionaries in the National Assembly. Now the Paris Sands culottes had thrust them violently aside. From this point on, the central theme of the revolution was an uncompromising power struggle between these two groups. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.